Welcome to Hooked on Bond, where three long-time fans discuss the James Bond films. Welcome to episode five. I'm Brian. I'm Gary. And this is Edmund's son. <laughs> we are talking about You Only Live Twice from 1967, starring Sean Connery as Bond. And Gary, why don't you give us a, a quick plot summary? Sure. Uh, in this one, James Bond is dispatched to the Far East, specifically, specifically Japan, to investigate a potential uh, unknown plot where someone appears to be tampering with rocket launchers, where they are actually abducting spaceships belonging to the Americans or possibly and the Russians. And basically, Bond is sent out to investigate, figure out who's behind it before Russia and the U.S. go to war with each other. And uh, it, the, the entirety of the movie is pretty much set in Japan, except for the first couple of seconds in the opening sequence. And uh, it does a really interesting job of portraying Japan as, in terms of travelogue. Um, but anyways, we'll, we'll get to that a little later. Yes, absolutely. And as we mentioned, Sean Connery back as Bond. And uh, certainly yeah, by this time, uh, well into the role and uh, getting towards the end of his tenure uh, as Bond. Yeah, I think at this point it's very it's widely known that he was pretty tired of it at this point, and uh, I think he manages to keep his performance interesting. But but it se- it seems like he was very tired of doing the series at this point. Yes, I think so. It was it was number five for him, and that is quite a long stretch. The first four were all in consecutive years, and then there was nothing in '66, and this was '67. So that's over a pretty short span of time to be doing that many films. And it was during work on this film that Connery announced uh, to the producers that he was not going to be doing another one. I guess, like, I, I don't remember the dates of it, but I know that he was definitely taking on some other work at the time. I think The Hill, or uh, I know he did Marnie in the, or, or a few years earlier with Hitchcock. And so I think he was looking for opportunities to do more that was outside of the Bond world, and Bond world would just take up so much of his time that there was no way he could continue to do it and still be able to do work elsewhere. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, go, go ahead, Edmund. Yeah, and uh, I mean, yeah, it was because it was actually we we didn't just really discuss it in, when we were discussing Thunderball, but it was it was sort of in, in some of the promotions for Thunderball after they'd filmed that that uh, you know he sort of start, started voicing some of his reservations about uh, you know that he. Uh, you know, wasn't sure how much longer he could do it, and uh, you know, saying me, you know, maybe somebody else should have a crack at it. You know, not, and, you know, but sort of damning by faint praise. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe somebody else should do it. Not that I necessarily recommend it, but uh, you know, yeah, the, uh, the 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 strain was starting to show at this point, and he, uh, I mean, he definitely specifically mentioned that you know, it certainly wasn't stretching him as an actor. So, you know, certainly the way given the material and uh, in fact he'd been do- he'd been doing it for a while now, so he he wanted to move on to some more challenging. Sure. At this point, the idea of having a big series of action movies with the same actor playing the main character as the sort of action hero, uh, film after film, was not something uh, as common as it would become later. It's not something that... uh, was being done a lot at that time. It's been done a lot since then, but it was uh, not sort of the standard in the same way. 
Yep. No, definitely not. I mean, in many ways, I mean, the, it, it was the Bond films that actually did kind of start establishing that, you know, and the, you know, certainly once, once you get to the, the 80s and sort of the, the classic action stars that, uh, you know, this was kind of giving, giving Hollywood their first haste that, uh, you know, yes, you could have a whole series of films with the same person who could, that could uh, make you a bunch of money. Yes, and it would, it would work and it would sell. So we had a few different Bond girls in this. Uh, we had uh, a relatively brief turn by Karen Dorr as Helga Brand. Or we could just call her Fiona Volpe Mark II. Yes. They didn't, even change, they didn't even change the hair color. They just made her <laughs> they made her German, but otherwise German instead of Italian. And not as not yeah. quite interesting, but essentially same character. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then we had some um, two different Japanese women. Aki and Kizzy were the characters. Yeah, ne- neither one, I mean, neither one is necessarily bad, but neither one really developed much of a, a personality. I guess that's probably the fact that they couldn't really speak any English, and I, I imagine they were dubbed also. Actually, one of them was dubbed and one was not. Ah, I see. Um, it was probably Aki that wasn't dubbed? Or... That's right. Right. And and that yep. makes sense because you feel like I feel her performance is real, but at the same time I feel her, her grasp of English isn't quite strong enough to really get, you know, to play a role, to, to, to actually play a character. That's right. What happened when they were working on this was they decided, I think they were starting to get the feeling that they should have uh, actresses for the Bond girls who could uh, do a good performance and could... I carry off the dialogue well enough that they wouldn't need to be dubbed. And they looked they looked for Japanese women who would look the part and had acting experience and had a good grasp of English. And they couldn't find anyone. <laughs> they, they looked, they were interviewing in Japan, they couldn't find anyone. So what they decided to do was to take two Japanese actresses who were okay acting and, you know, look look apart, and brought them to England for a while to teach them English. And uh, for uh, Akiko uh, Wakabayashi, that was pretty successful. She she really took to it and did did quite a good job uh, from, you know, from what they were saying at the time. Where Mia Hame, uh, that just wasn't happening. She had a lot of difficulty uh, with uh, learning English, and in fact, they reversed the role. Oh. Uh, originally, oh. they were going to be the two of them were going to be playing the other roles, and they switched them because they figured that the one who would be doing her own dialogue uh, should be uh, playing the character of Aki. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, and you know, and uh, and certainly, I mean, in the context of the film, I mean, it it, it does make a, a a certain amount of sense, given uh, you know that Aki is really more sort of the the sidekick agent, and uh, Kizzy is you know you know is sort of you know I mean she's she's, she's the you know the, the stand-in wife, so you know I mean yes you know she, you know she she is involved, but uh, and she is an and, agent uh, as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean you know, but but uh, but but for some reason it's it sort of what you know once once they do when once they infiltrate the village, it seems, you know, no, she's, you know, she's sort of got that, uh, even though she's involved in the operation, it's, um, 
you know, it kind of sets it up to where most of her time is spent is spent as you know playing the more sub, more subservient wife, and Aki's role, you know, is you know is the more dynamic, you know, running around Tokyo and uh, right. helping Bond out, uh, you know, driving up at exactly the right time every time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and there's a little bit of chemistry required between Aki and Bond, and I think they had some of that, and that was that was nice. Where yep. with with uh, uh, Miyahama, that was not the case. The chemistry was just really not there, and that was probably uh, okay and more fitting for that role. That she was just sort of there and keeping her distance, and there wasn't that much of a connection there. No, between the actors. Although, of course, if you've uh, read or skimmed the Fleming, uh, you know that uh, Kissy Suzuki is actually the only woman to bear one of Bond bear Bond's children, or one child at least. Oh, wow. Uh, that is at the end of the book for You Only Live Twice. He ends up on the island with uh, with a severe amount of amnesia from the, the final fight sequence. And he stays there uh-huh. for a while until he uh, has flashes. When he sees the name Vladivostok, he has flashes of that from his past. So he decides to go off to Vladivostok and leaves. And then she eventually has a child from him. And yeah. that's actually touched upon eventually when he's unfortunately murdered in a bad Raymond Benson Bond short story that had no real business <laughs> existing. It's like, great, you created a sh- you're writing a short story where you kill this character that nobody really cares about other than to say, it's nice to imagine that he's out there, but no, you just went ahead and killed him. <laughs> I found that very irritating. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a bit of a digression, but I, I thought it was pretty funny. No, very nice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But we, yeah. But we yeah, had but... these... We had these two characters, Aki and Kizzy, who were um, sort of similar in some ways, but it was like Aki was part of it and then, uh, you know, is dispatched partway through the film and Kizzy is sort of there as a replacement, which seemed a little bit awkward, but I guess sort of worked reasonably well. Yeah, I, I think that the, the, the Bond romance in this one doesn't really work at the end, so as you're right, at the end of this movie, we don't we don't get the impression they're going to spend more than five minutes together after they come in off the boat. Yeah, yeah. They, their connection was the cover story, and that's yeah. about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, although one thing I did I did like with this one, I mean, you know, the, the with the uh, you know what one of Aki's roles is to uh, sort of lead Bond on that that merry chase through the subway, which uh, leads to that uh, that rather fun introduction to Tiger Tanaka, which uh, you know the head of the Japanese Secret Service, who is his you know is sort of his his main ally in uh, in this whole operation. And uh, actually, I, I I really kind kind of like the uh, the uh, um, sort of camaraderie between Tanaka and Bond in this one. It actually was sort of reminding me more of uh, what was going on, you know, the uh, um, Karen Bay and uh, From Russia with Love. Yes, absolutely. Where, uh, you, you know, yeah, you know, you get, you know, this is not the case where you really get the impression of, you know, no, this is more like, you know, two equals who are, you know, just helping each other out on this operation. And uh, Yeah, but how, how couldn't I mean, Bond... How couldn't Bond yeah. love Tiger Tanaka and all the trappings of his existence? What with oh, the, yeah. the house full of wonder <laughs> of, of uh, the the Japanese official Japanese bath, complete with like four or five women to sponge you down. Yeah. I mean, I just yes. came back from Japan and I I did a Japanese bath, but unfortunately, I had to do the sponging myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are no convenient uh, bathing girls just sitting there waiting to serve you. Right. Yes. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, 
Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, but, but I also love the just the, just a little thing of when they they go to his private trade, you know, and he's like, you know, yes, I, you know, I'm sure M has a similar setup. And Bob's sort of like, uh, yes. You know, <laughs> no, of course are. he does. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. Now, this also leads to my favorite line in the movie and possibly the entire Bond series, where Tiger asks Bond to choose his masseuse, and when Bond chooses, he goes, "Off, oh, good choice. She is very sexy full." Yes. Sexy full is, is really. I don't know why that word didn't catch on. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe you need to start using it more. Yes. Yeah, I I think um, Tetsuro Tanba was a great choice for Tiger Tanaka. A very good casting. And uh, from the sound of things, once they, you know, once they found him, there was really no question about whether he was the one for the role or not. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, the guy running the Japanese Secret Service probably would have been the biggest stuffed shirt and like, you know, <laughs> the whole culture, the whole Japanese culture of the hierarchy and everything. Yeah. In reality, that guy would have been much more stiffer than M, I'm sure. Yeah. But for the movie, he was definitely a good character. Yes, absolutely. And there was something a little bit where we didn't, didn't quite trust him as well, which was also nice. That initial moment of menace, you yeah. mean? Yeah. No, that's that's very well done. Now with the with the code phrase "I love you." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They they built that for all it was worth, didn't they? Yes, they did. But, but it was okay. Um, oh, yeah. We also uh, can't help but mention for the first time in the Bond series, we see. Blofeld uh, fully in the face. We actually get to see what he looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, <clears throat> in this case, a recast with Donald Pleasance playing Blofeld. Right. And in fact, a recast from the original actor that they chose, uh, a Czech actor named Jan Verk, or where? Who looks too much like Father sure. Christmas, apparently. Yeah, he actually has a very kindly look to him, which, of course, if you're actually creating a villain, a kindly look for a villain is, is, is very sinister, yes. can be extremely sinister. Oh, sure. And I, I suspect that maybe that, that was the right idea. Uh, and uh, he's more menacing. You can almost see, see, like, he might want to be behind the glass if he was trying to be, or behind the, the, the shields when he's confronting his men because they would not see, feel he was menacing enough. Yeah. Right, but uh, instead they felt that wasn't menacing enough, so they decided to go for Donald Pleasance with the extremely hideous facial scar, who would be quite terrifying to sit in front of. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and Donald Pleasance apparently had some discomfort with wearing that scar makeup. Hmm. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> it's yeah. Well, iconic role. I mean, yes, absolutely. And uh, going with someone like Donald Pleasance, uh, he was able to do his own dialogue. Of course, he was not dubbed. And yep. was able to uh, to do this sort of German accent or quasi-German accent and bring off that sense of menace very well. Uh, he's a very good actor for doing that kind of thing and having that unsettling kind of feeling. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I mean, probably the, certainly the most memorable of the actors to play Blofeld. And obviously the impact of his role is, was felt all the way through Mike Myers' movie and almost any parody movie where there's been a villain in a, like Dr. Claw and all these things or more, even though you never see him. It's a, like, it's still, I think, I think of him more like Donald Pleasance than anyone else. 
Yeah. Yeah, and also certainly in, in just in terms of the whole the whole setting. I mean, this is you know the you know the whole layer hidden in the volcano is sort of you know setting up what has also become a bit of a cliche of you know yes the uh, the uh, secret base for the villain who's try trying to uh, set off world domination or in this case it seems just world conflict. But uh, you know, that's always been a little unclear uh, unclear to me. It's like okay, exactly what what was the point of this operation? Yeah, even within this. Even within this movie, it's unclear. I remember there's a scene near the end where Blofeld goes, once this happens, a new power will rise. And I'm thinking, yeah, China, yeah. not you. <laughs> Isn't that well, a problem? Yeah. <laughs> Like, uh, it wasn't clear who he was. He was doing this for the Chinese, and, and he seemed to be extorting more money from them, but it wasn't clear how he was going to take control. Yeah, yeah. You know, or take control of the, 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 the half of the world that isn't glowing. <laughs> yes. In terms of yeah, so the, the base in the volcano, this was uh, the enormous set piece they had for this film. And as far as the villain's lair, I think they they outdid themselves in this one. It was, uh, I think, one of the biggest sets ever built at the time. Uh, possibly yeah, the biggest mm-hmm. set ever built at the time. And few have, been, the time. Built, few have been built uh, on that scale or even approaching that scale since. Yeah, except for Bond sets on the well, this, the eventual That's studio. Right. I mean, they had to take yeah. this entire thing down. That was one of the problems. It was such a big set. Uh, it had to be built up independently. It couldn't be built in a studio even. It had. It was built like on a yeah, lot. Yeah, it was on the studio lot and towered over everything else. That's right. It was basically like a building they created. Yeah, and then took apart. So it was uh, it was a one-time thing. No one would ever... It, it's like a lot of the buildings, like in New York City. They would never build them like that again to that height. The, you know, they would never do that set again. Not quite like that. Particularly not when you don't have to. It's basically like if you had a, a Gladiator movie. Imagine if they had built the Coliseum and actually fitted it with everybody that's in the stands yeah, instead of digitally right. inserting everybody. That's what they did here. And it was tremendously effective. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's and I, I would think at the time it must have been something that would have been uh, utterly remarkable to see this on the big screen. And even now, I think it stands up very well. Yeah, I think what they managed to do was all those Pulp Fictions that had villains with their hidden bases, no one had ever been able to put it on screen live action quite as well as this. Yeah, it may be that the closest thing or one of the closest was actually in Dr. No. Yes, but it was that was just sort of a lab and stuff like that. But this was on such a yeah. bigger scale. It was an it was an enormous scale. Yeah, and they they had uh, as they were depicting, you know, rockets launching out of it and being pulled down into it. Yeah, and yeah, and 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 magically landing. I mean, I'm, I'm, the helicopters uh, landing as well. Yeah, the rocket landing. That yeah, was... the vertical landing. <laughs> That was that was new, but I, I'm sure that's what people would have wanted to do with their rockets. So why not? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, 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 it was a nice thought, thought, but it was it was one thing watching this this time, thinking about you know, yes, this was you know, but before people came really familiar with the Apollo missions and things, and uh, let's seeing not, it now, you know, you know, it's like you know, no, this, you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, I know Mercury was going on at the time, but. Uh, the American missions they were capturing with their uh, bizarre spacecraft that could, uh, could um, you know, enclose and capture another ship. They were capturing Gemini. Oh, right? I know, I know. Um, yeah. Let's let's not forget that this yeah, movie. Uh, and I think were the were the Russian craft Vostok? 
At that point, I think it may have been Vostok. Um, I think so, yeah. We have to give credit. Uh, no, I, miss, uh, yeah. no, I, I didn't mean to say Gemini, not Mercury. But, we, uh, have, we have to give credit where credit's due here. That this is The other interesting thing about this movie is, uh, for once, they went completely off base in terms of getting a writer. They went well outside their sphere and, and gave it to Roald Dahl. And yes. he, I think he deserves all the credit for the, the craziness, the real the inventiveness of this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, all the ideas like the rocket ship just landing the way they want it to land and you know in his books the great glass elevator could do whatever it wanted so why not in this make it happen and it does yeah and mm-hmm. he was not someone who was known as a script writer he was at the time known for short doors yeah and uh, it was definitely sort of stepping out uh going with him and uh yeah i think it was uh uh, you know, really quite successful. Yeah, they st- and usually they use their house writers. It's either Richard Maybaum or Tom Mankiewicz or one of those guys. And then eventually Michael Wilson took over to work with Richard Maybaum and it stayed pretty much in their hands for the longest time. And then eventually they hired... So this was a unique thing for them to really go outside, I think. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that sounds right. I would tend to agree with that. Yeah, and actually, so, yeah. I don't know if this was if, if this if this was Roald contribution, but also, I mean, the whole thing of, of having the meeting with M occurring on the submarine. You know, I mean, here I was cracking jokes about you know M doesn't have a train, but M does have a submarine. Yeah, <laughs> it's very true. Com- complete complete with an office that you know looks surprisingly like his usual one. <laughs> Yeah, I guess this is where they introduce the idea that M has his office wherever he is. Yeah. Wherever he goes. And takes Money Penny with him. Yeah. Mm. Um, and oddly enough, they were uh, all in naval uniform in this one. Yep. Oh, and this features. Uh, that the, I had forgotten. That yeah. surprised me a little bit that all of a sudden they were in the Navy. And since we're talking about the submarine, yeah. that's like uh, from the opening sequences of the movie where it takes place in the submarine, I, I quite liked a couple of elements there. The uh, the shot of Hong Kong Harbor I thought was really nice because I don't think I'd ever even seen it in that form, like at that a snapshot of it from that era. Uh, before huh. it became completely overbuilt by all the gigantic buildings you see today. Oh, sure. It was yeah. nice to actually yeah. get a snapshot of it. Also, uh, another just another thing worth noting that I always love is the, the bit where Money Penny throws Bond the uh, the book, uh, the, the Japanese translation book, uh, the, oh, yeah. and, and goes, doesn't you forget, I, I took a, a, whatever, a fifth, a, no, what do they call it? A, no, 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 it was a first. <laughs> a first. I took a first. I took a first in Oriental <laughs> languages at Cambridge. <laughs> it's like Bond never went to Cambridge. It's one of the more obvious bearing. Like, that never happened. Not, not that you need just, to just, pick everything, but that one never happened. Yeah. No, 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 I, I always took that as that. That's just part of his borrowing his money. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. He, he had to get back at her for her, for her tr- trying to get him to say the code, right? So. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think uh, Roald Dahl took... Uh, so the Ian Fleming novel was largely a travelogue of Japan. Uh, it's mm-hmm. the last novels he wrote, and I think he was really, really tired of writing Bond books. So it ended up being largely a travelogue, and I think Roald Dahl managed to combine that with the spy story to really give you a, uh, I mean, obviously a, a somewhat um, culturally insensitive portrayal on some levels of Japan, but it did touch upon all the cultural elements. So, like, there was sumo, sure. there were Japanese baths, there were the pearl divers, there were the wedding ceremonies. Um, yeah, it, in culturally insensitive in some ways, but at least based on something realistic. Exactly. Having actually gone there and seen things. Exactly, that's exactly the way I'm thinking. Uh, Ian Fleming certainly enjoyed his travel and enjoyed uh, incorporating the uh, the 
views of his travel and the different places he had been into his book. And uh, I guess uh, this one was sort of at the point where that was uh, uh, taking over a little bit. Yeah. It's uh, definitely definitely one of those hardest books to read. Apparently, very few people like it. It's just mostly travelogue and and a very mean spirited book, I think. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, in this movie, it just it really covers the the details very nicely. Uh, the shots of Kobe where where they do the waterfront dock sequence where Bond has the fight with the dock workers, which is incredibly right. well photographed with the chases on the roof. Yeah. It, it's it was really very nice. unique yeah. because it was done in very wide shot. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And gave you, you know, rather than seeing Bond fighting this person, you see Bond running across the roof, fighting everyone getting in his way as he goes. Yeah. Uh, and it has a very unique feel to it that I've yeah. seen in very few other things. Yeah, no, it's really well yeah. done. Um, yeah, absolutely. And one thing I noticed more this time was that whole sense of, because you're seeing everybody, I mean, you get that sense of, you know, because yeah, you keep taking taking down these smaller groups and you see the other groups, you know, sort of getting a little hesitant about like, you know, do I really want to take on this guy? <laughs> and, you know, you know, yes, they, you know, they, they do it, but then, you know, it just, everybody falls. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a very, very interesting way to, uh, to show that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, title sequence. You mentioned that just in passing, Gary. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, uh, I do enjoy the title song. I think uh, it was a time to take a step back from the bombastic performances of, of Shirley Bassey and Tom Jones. And I think Nancy Sinatra delivers a really good performance of a really good song. One that's actually like gone on to a much bigger life outside the movie. And I think it's a song that fit the movie they were doing very well. Yes, yes. The music is... Both in in terms of uh, it being a film set in Japan, and also the tone of it being sort of a little bit more melancholy and it, it fits the film very well. Yeah, I, I don't I don't even watch the show, but Mad Men last season uh, ended the final scene yeah. of Mad Men was a montage of all the characters set to You Only Live Twice. Uh, to a, someone yeah, performing it, it, in a bar, like a torch song performance yeah. of and it's really, really powerful and you're thinking so that this song has uh, like a big impact on people who are watching Mad Men, many people who've probably never even seen the Bond movie that it goes with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was it was rather bizarre on on Twitter. All of a sudden, the hashtag of well, YOLT became like <laughs> you know, was, was trending. Like that. <laughs> so yeah, the the song is so good. Uh, yet the title sequence, I just remember a bunch of fans and volcanoes. It's not. It's definitely not one of the stronger mm-hmm. title sequences. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it yeah, is. Yeah, the it's, song yeah. is the standout on this. Yes, by far. Yeah. And yeah. and and along with the song, the John Barry score is, is amazing. The uh, the space march has been used continuously and is, is some of the best music that that ominous tone in space mm-hmm. it, it's it's some of the best music he's done yeah yeah he's been on an upward spiral up till now he's done some really good work in these films yeah there. this is the first time we've seen uh lots of this sort of space model work in the bond films they were alluding to things related to space missions in dr no but here we have Lots going on where we see uh, uh, these various spacecraft and them being captured. And that was, um, uh, I think, very much something that was of its time and becoming uh, a much bigger deal in um, uh, popular media around that. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, as being a little kid around that time and just, you know, 
following Agog at uh, all of all of the different space missions. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, when uh, you know, I didn't see this until later, but it was definitely bringing back all those memories of uh, following all those astronauts and uh, trying to imagine what it would have been like if things like this were happening. <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I mean, also that I mean that first one in particular with the spacewalk. Um, you know, and uh, you know, in terms of sort of the, the, the ruthlessness of Spectre of uh, you know, yeah, just closing in on it and just <laughs> cutting through the core. And you know, you know, you know, it's got, you know, this is like, you know, two years before two thousand one. We've got an astronaut yeah. uh, just uh, ab- abandoned in orbit. To uh, well, Kubrick did that better, know. though I have to say. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But, uh, yes, yeah, but exactly. it was an it was a very ominous moment. Yes. Know? Live twice, seeing that the the oxygen tube or the tether being sliced. Yep, definitely. Yep. And it, looking back at it now, uh, the type of model work they were doing definitely reminds me of what Jerry Anderson was doing around the same time. Yeah, definitely. Um, and this was, I guess, this would have been about the same time as as Captain Scarlet and the Mysteron, wouldn't it? I think that's about. Yes, it would. Yep. Uh, yeah. you definitely have. I uh, you definitely have some sort of similar imagery and similar techniques coming in. Uh, I think that's also the time to to mention. This is the first time I see some uh, some Jerry Anderson connections showing up in terms of the actors. I'm sure you noticed that too, Edmund. Yes, even I noticed the. I don't even follow Jerry Anderson's work, but I did notice the actor in particular. It uh, it was Shane Rimmer. Jane Rimmer was one, but Ed Bishop was in it as well. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, in fact, they were the two uh, the two controllers uh, talking to the uh, the American spacecraft. Um, yep. So the the opening sequence when the first capture is happening, the uh, the controller on the ground who's talking to them is play is played by Ed Bishop. And uh, he was, uh, um, well, I guess around the same time, was uh, voicing one of the leads in Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons and went on uh, to play the lead in UFO, the live-action Jerry Anderson series. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Shane Rimmer also did uh, a lot of work with Jerry Anderson doing voice work and doing live-action work as well. The two of them, Ed Bishop and Shane Rimmer, uh, sometimes called themselves the Yanks for Hire because yep. they were the, oh, yeah. they were two uh, North American actors living and working in the UK and very frequently were cast to be you know the Americans one of them or both of them showing up in uh, in all sorts of things ranging ranging from uh, Jerry Anderson's work as we mentioned to uh, uh, Doctor Who in the mid sixties for. Uh, for Shane Rimmer and uh, all sorts of things um, over the years in the, the last half of the 60s and through most of the 70s and uh, from time to time even later than that. And you see these guys showing up uh, in all sorts of things. You know, if you look at uh, the film Gandhi, the American uh, announcer at the beginning is played by Shane Rimmer. Yeah, and Shane Rimmer, of course, makes a, a prominent reappearance in the James Bond movies uh, soon to come. So he, he reappears in The Spy Who Loved Me. And uh, and yeah, as you were saying, he's also in the Batman. He's also in Batman Begins in a fairly memorable small cameo. Basically playing the same role he plays in You'll Live Twice. That's right. A guy in a control room waiting for yeah. a disaster to happen. But that's what yeah, you get. He, he, he you... keeps showing up. Ed Bishop, <laughs> I think this was his only Bond film. Yes. 
Yeah, no, but, but Ed, Ed Bishop also did a, a lot of voice work. So even if you haven't seen him, you you're, you're likely to have heard him at some point. In other in other uh, news about actors that show up more than once, this is also the first appearance in the James Bond series of the actor Charles Gray playing Bond's very short-lived ally Dicko Henderson. Um, <laughs> yes, but he does have a memorable scene with memorable dialogue and memorable delivery, and it's clear that oh, the yeah. filmmakers liked him sufficiently and uh, decided to bring him back as surprisingly enough Lofeld. And yeah. just a couple of movies. That's right. Uh, he was a pretty strong character in this and a fairly important part of it, but, you know, it was just a rather short uh, appearance. Yep. Uh, yeah. It seemed like he could have been a he could have been the character who would fill the the tiger the tiger Tanaka role and be the major ally for the balance of the film. But of course, that was a I guess a little bit of a fake out, mm-hmm. and uh, that turns out not to be the case. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I mean, I mean that whole that whole sequence. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean Charles Gray definitely pulls off. You know, know that you know, give, even just that one scene giving the impression of you know, no, this is no, this is the the man on the scene who knows what's going on and then you know actually that you know that whole uh, little sequence that bond pulls off of uh, taking out the assassin and then uh, impersonating the assassin is actually you know a, you know a, ki- a kind of nice little su- subtle bit of, of spy work you know sort of uh, you know something a, l- a little bit different than what we've been seeing than just the you know the sort of straight ahead you know assaulting the enemy it was like you know no actually uh, doing a uh, you know a, a little bit of misdirection and uh, deception there. And I think the fact that Charles Gray's character, Henderson, seems so much, uh, you know, someone who's competent and knows what he's doing, that the fact that he's just killed off helps to add to the threat and uh, tell us, you know, just how serious Spectre is and how powerful they are in this situation. Yep. Though they still miss their chances when they have them. Um, <laughs> Bond eventually goes, when he, after the after the scene in, in the first scene in Osato's office, he goes back the next day for the formal meeting with Mr. Osato, um, yes. who also turns in a pretty good performance, uh, Teru Shimada, as, the, as sort of Blofeld's second-in-command in Japan. Um, and, and I read recently, he was, he was an actor back in the 40s, even earlier, I think, than that, and an American. He's actually an American. Japanese actor, and uh, apparently he was some. His career had fallen so low he was working as a janitor uh, before oh. they put him back in this movie, and then this led oh. to him getting other Asian villain roles and on US TV and stuff like that. Right. But uh, he was quite good, and you also meet his his uh, healthily chested pilot line, yes. like Mr. Osato likes a healthy chest. We talked about uh, Helga Brand, played by Karen Dorr, and she gets a few good scenes. I mean, she has the one scene with Connery, uh, with Bond, where she has him captive, and it seems like he's trying to turn her, but she's obviously not being turned. She doesn't buy anything he's saying, he doesn't buy anything she's saying, and she does try to kill him a little later in perhaps the most elaborately staged way to kill somebody, uh, given that it failed miserably. <laughs> I'm not. Yes. I'm, I'm not sure why she didn't just shoot him and then jump out of the plane. But uh, yeah, not one oh, of the well, best things. Yeah, you know. Well, you know when. <laughs> No, I can't really explain it. You know? <laughs> of course, she does happen. No, she, she does yeah, add to the yeah, film. By, that, go ahead. <laughs> she gets to uh, provide the film with another with a classic villain terminating their own employee scene with Blofeld's piranha uh, pool. Yes. Which is another classic uh, villain motif. Uh, it's not just an electrocuting chair. Nope, he's got a pool of man-eating piranhas that can strip a human to the bone in barely 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Used to very good effect in this film. 
Of course. Well, why wouldn't you keep a bunch of piranhas that could strip a human to bone in 30 seconds around? I can't think of a single reason. In your, in your living room. That's a great idea. To yes. Make. If you can't get piranha like that, then you could try sharks with friggin' lasers on their heads or, or sea bass, <laughs> mutated sea bass. <laughs> Mutant sea bass, yeah. Um... Uh, Bert Kwok shows up in this. The uh, uh, actor, if we had the the Yanks for Hire, Bert Kwok is the sort of uh, typical uh, Japanese-British actor who shows up in a lot of different things. Uh, showed up in Doctor Who many years later in the early 80s. Uh, so it was nice to see him in here as uh, one of Spectre's agents, number three, I believe. Yeah, and uh, and the, another villain here is also, uh, we shouldn't forget Hans, the first of many attempts to clone yeah. Red Grant. Yeah. <laughs> Basically mute, large German blonde men that Bond will have to defeat at some point near the end of the movie in order to accomplish his mission. Some versions of him are better than others in other films. I'd say Necros is definitely one of the better ones, whereas Stamper is not. <laughs> but they're really the same. Uh, well, Hans doesn't get a lot to do in this except be there for, uh, you know, for someone for Bond to beat up. That's right. Here, Hans, yeah. I'm giving you the yeah. key, the exploding button. I'm sure that won't come in handy later. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Hans is there to, to, to demonstrate the piranha. Yes. <laughs> he gets to throw the meat in. <laughs> Somebody has to do it. And as I was saying before, uh, we started talking about this, the Lothal Cat also makes a good appearance in this movie. And if you actually do pay attention in some of the scenes where things are blowing up, Donald Pleasance is having a lot of difficulty controlling the poor cat. Uh, apparently the cat never acted again and was traumatized by its experiences on set. Uh, legend mm -hmm. has it that it ran away and spent days hiding in the upper levels of the gigantic set and was probably only found when they were taking down the set. Yeah. <laughs> it simply wasn't good couldn't stay there any longer. Yeah. Having lived with cats my entire life and having, at one time, having a uh, fire in my apartment building, I can tell you that, yes, if cats are traumatized, they will hide in places where it's impossible to find them for a long time. So that is no surprise to me that, yes, it was, it was days and days later. Yeah, and if you'll notice at the end of the movie, when Blofeld escapes, he does not escape with the cat. And he pretty, he no. pretty much drops the cat after the he shoots Osato, and, and it's like the cat's not there at the end. Like, did he just stop caring about it, or was it too difficult to do the scene anymore? Like they just at that point yeah. when they were filming that scene, the cat was probably long gone, or whatever they had left wasn't gonna, just wasn't going to do it. Yes. <laughs> so there was no cat there. I always felt sad for Blofeld to have to have escaped without his cat, and uh, he gets another yeah. one later. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I always just took it as you know, no, the, the cat really is just a, just the prop. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't really care about the cat. He just, he just knows that uh, it, it works for the image. So in the previous film, in Thunderball, we had the, the rocket belt or the jetpack. This time around, we have little Nelly. Yes. Yeah, and then <laughs> little Nelly definitely seems to have more practical applications. Yes, and it's the first time we, see, we really see uh, Bond flying an aircraft. Um, hmm. You know, although I, I guess you sort of see him flying the, the jet pack, but uh, Little Nelly yeah. is this no, sort yeah. of collapsible uh, aircraft that's sort of quickly assembled hmm. and has a variety of uh, weaponry and equipment of all sorts on it. And it's like a, a yeah. gyrocopter, they called it, I guess. Yeah, auto, auto, gyro, auto, auto gyro or something. Auto gyro, auto yeah. Gyro, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yes, yeah. Uh, the code was uh, send little Nelly and send her with her father. Yes. Wasn't her, her uncle? Oh, it was her father. Yeah, not her uncle. It was her father. 
Okay. It was her father, and that was Hugh. Yeah, and, 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 so you get Hugh show, uh, showing uh, how little Melly is set up, sort of paralleling the Goldfinger sequence where he was demonstrating the Aston Martin with all of its gadgetry. Yeah, which, surprise, surprise, does happen to come into play with each of the four helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> I love how that happens, yeah. <laughs> I guess. But. What a cool... At just the right device, at just the right time for this situation. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, yeah. absolutely. It's it's Chekhov's gun, right? <laughs> yeah. If you see a gun in the first act, it'll be fired before the end of the play. And it's funny uh, that yeah. it's funny that they those get lazier and lazier as they go along in the series. Like the device becomes more and more absurd. Like that's the device you happen to have. Yeah, and then and then lo and behold, yes, it happens to be the perfect one. Yes, uh, uh, ring that destroys glass when there's a glass floor is the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> oh, what an amazing, what an amazing coincidence that turned out to be. Yep, yep. Little Nelly did give us uh, a rather entertaining um, uh, uh, aerial uh, aerial combat sequence when Bond is sort of out uh, scouting around to find the uh, ultimately to find the Spectre base, and of course the Spectre helicopters show up, and there's this whole uh, whole sequence there, and. Um, it turns out when they were filming that, aerial photographer who was working with them was actually badly injured. Um, it was in a scene where they were uh, in one helicopter looking down directly at another helicopter below them. And mm-hmm. uh, the helicopter above was got so close that it had uh, um, a piece of the landing strut was uh, cut off by the rotor of the helicopter below. Which, yeah, well, it it effectively crashed the helicopter below. Uh, the helicopter yeah. above, they needed to put out locks for it to land on because it was missing part of it. Of course. Um, yeah. The helicopter wow. below, the uh, aerial photographer who was in there, uh, actually ultimately uh, lost a foot. Oh. Uh, mm. And um, uh, you know had um, uh, a great deal of um, a trouble for that. I believe they they reattached the foot, but in the end it had to be amputated. Mm. And uh, he did continue to work and uh, did uh, some very um, uh, intense aerial photography work on later Bond films. Uh, and um, uh, sadly, his um, uh, his passion, his great passion for doing this uh, this aerial photography, did indeed uh, lead to uh, to a fatal accident for him on a later film, not a Bond film, but another film he worked with. But uh, yeah, there was some uh, some intense things that were happening there. But they did also uh, get some uh, pretty dramatic footage out of it, and he was responsible for quite a bit of that. Yeah, the aerial stuff, the footage of Kyushu, the volcanoes, is really amazing. I've I've gone there and hiked on some of those volcanoes, and it's a pretty amazing landscape. So I always love watching the movie just to re-see those scenes. For sure. Um, 
yes, this is one that definitely has some um, uh, impressive landscapes in it around the volcanoes and so on. Yeah, yeah. Another another great sequence, of course, is uh, filmed at Himeji Castle, which is considered Japan's finest uh, still existing castle. Uh, it's called the White um, I forget it's the White Heron Castle because it's so pristine, and uh, all the ninja sequences, the ninja training sequences, were filmed at Himeji Castle. So that's actually right. another really well-known location. I tried to figure out where the uh, the wedding scene was because that seemed like a fairly nice temple grounds on a high mountain, but I, I have not been able to figure that out. But it's quite nice. Uh, and you were also mentioning another thing I read was uh, apparently uh, Broccoli, Saltzman, Ken Adam, Lewis Gilbert, and some other people were all booked on a flight to leave Japan, but then they got the opportunity mm-hmm. to see the ninjas training or to see actual training for that. So they canceled their tickets and that plane eventually crashed, killing everybody. That's right. So it's yeah. one of those lo- very uh, fortunate, uh, lucky lucky coincidences that they changed their tickets. That's mm-hmm. right. There were indeed um, some unfortunate things that happened in, a, in and around the filming of this. Uh, but, okay, I think we've covered most of the details. So uh, let's sort of um, go to our final thoughts. Gary, what did you think of this? Well, I, like I said, I've always enjoyed it the way it makes Japan look. It's a, I think it's a great visual uh, film. It uses some additionally new techniques like the shots from the roof. Uh, it's a good, thrilling story with great creative and imagina- imaginative elements. And uh, I still enjoy the movie a lot. Yes, I'm going to agree with most of that. It's a good, solid film with um, a, a story that really keeps going. I enjoy that and has uh, a lot of good techniques uh pieces in it with the big set pieces and some of the photography they were doing and it uh has uh quite a memorable villain and memorable memorable interaction with bond interacting with blowbelt for the first time mm-hmm. so this uh, definitely was uh, a fun one. So I like this. I like this one quite a bit. Yeah, no, I'll uh, I'll uh, agree with both of you. I mean, what I, what I particularly liked watching it through this time was, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, the you know the 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 space nut child in me, you know, so, I mean, al- always loves all the orbital stuff and uh, you know, the whole idea of stealing spacecraft. But uh, but uh, the, the way they melded that with actually giving you, you know, however skewed and stereotypical, you know, an image it might be, but you know, sort of you know taking that time out to show you parts of Japan and show you some of that cultural background as well. It just uh, I thought they managed to meld that together really well, which uh, I will I will certainly put it uh, you know all all the credit at Roll Dolls feet for that is uh, you know another part of my childhood was, was reading all of his wonderful books. So uh, you know yeah it was uh, kind of nice to see that uh, you know yeah he was able to kind of meld some of his uh, Charlie Chocolate Factory stuff with some of his uh, more you know um, thrillerish uh, short story stuff. So, because uh, uh, anybody who knows your short stories will will understand when I say I've, I've never thought of lighters and fingers in quite the same way. So, hmm. so, so well, um, let us just let us just never mention the trying to turn Sean Connery into a Japanese man sequence ever again. <laughs> that all yeah, that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a misfire. That's yes, a but... bizarre. And then he walked around sort of crouching. Yes, the only upside yeah. to that scene was they got to give him a hairpiece. So he could legitimately mm-hmm. be wearing a hairpiece instead of like wearing a hairpiece without everyone knowing it. Right, yes. <laughs> okay, so James Bond will return in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So this is Brian, and take care of us.
This is Edmund. See you next time. That's Gary. See you later. Thank you for listening to Hooked on Bond. Find out more at hookedonbond.com or on Facebook. Hooked on Bond is broadcast on the Voice of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com.